Thank you for downloading and listening to This Pathological Life. If you're interested in continuing the story, we have a second series called This Medical Life. Please download it and subscribe now. Dr. Travis Brown, why do we need a podcast called This Pathological Life? Every disease has its own story to tell. So we're going to tell them. Dr. Travis Brown, I'm a bit nervous about this episode because it's all about lead Mm. and my memories of primary school is gnawing on the end of a lead pencil, sucking it, if you like, during classes. I mean, we've had other episodes on smoking. I suppose that's the... uh, the, the child's uh, version where you learn to suck the teat, you know, the the, the pencil, etc. Have I ingested toxins? No, no, no. Not unless you uh, started chewing some of the paint chips in a really old place. So people often think it's lead and that's why it's called uh, the lead, but it, it, I think it has uh, graphite or carbon oh, right. in it. So so you might have just gotten blackened teeth, but no, it was no lead. So carbon, the other yeah. vitamin C, <laughs> yes. So, yes, uh, this is about lead. Uh, look... Lead is a very useful metal. Uh, it's it's very pliable. Uh, it's a bright, shiny, bluish white metal. Uh, I'm not sure if you've ever seen it directly. It's uh... yes. My dad and I used to get some old bits of lead uh, out in the back in the sandpit. We would melt it down in a saucepan, and then uh, we would put holes in the sandpit with little uh, hooks underneath, and we'd make our own fishing uh, weights right, with okay. lead. Yeah, yeah, no. Look, it's it's really useful, and that's the thing. It's it's soft, it's pliable, mm. so you can. It's it's easy to roll, uh, and it has a low melting point, yeah. so uh, three hundred and twenty-seven degrees Celsius. Low melting point. Then a lot of anger from Mum when she discovered what we were doing <laughs> with her saucepans. <laughs> well, that's yeah. I can only imagine. <laughs> And then, uh, yeah, so 327 degrees centigrade or 620 degrees Fahrenheit. Mm -hmm. um, And it doesn't easily corrode or leak when you've made something out of it. Uh, And in fact, it's still a very useful product these days. So because of the non-corrosive properties. Great. So it's all good. End of of the episode. (laughs) And uh, we can store acidic products in it. Uh, It's like tanks and lead acid batteries mm-hmm. uh, and it's very dense so everyone will have known that anytime you're using it with uh, radiation it's very pr- good for protection mm-hmm. uh, and we also used to use it in lead-based petrol oh yes so yeah yes. which which is eventually phased it smelled out, fantastic but... by the way i loved the smell of that lead pet- petrol am i not meant to say that no <laughs> well no no i still like the like, like the smell of petrol these yeah. days that's a problem as well i think but there is a problem with lead uh, and it is uh, toxic uh, if it's inhaled or ingested. And so uh, the problem is particularly children. So in the developing brain, lead is extremely bad news. Uh, and we have had recent times of exposure. So this is industrial contamination, so lead smelters. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's often a uh, industrial byproduct or being used in part of the manufacturing that then contaminates waterworks. And so people are at risk. But if we look all the way back, we have uh, ancients, uh, our ancient ancestors uh, regarded lead as the father of all metals. 
and and there are ancient uses of lead. Uh, they used to it, it, because it's so abundant, because it's easily mined, uh, and particularly if you happen to be, you know, the ancient Romans, they were well. They liked their slaves. Uh, so slaves would go and deal with the the lead, and you wouldn't have to worry about it as a Roman citizen. So, our oldest known lead containing uh, statue is a small uh, statue in Turkey, uh, six thousand five hundred years BCE. Uh, and we also have the Babylonians, Assyrians used it in construction. Egyptians used it to glaze pottery, uh, you know, 3000, 4000 BCE. Chinese used it in coins. Uh, and the ancient Greeks and Romans used it. They even used it for knuckles for their gladiators. Uh, and what we know is also the Romans, particularly the affluent Romans, mm. in, it was included in pipes, in plumbing, in drink water. So... This is where we get lead. The chemical sim- symbol is PB, uh, which is Latin for plumbum. And oh, really? so this also means waterworks. And so this is where we get the origin of the word plumber. <laughs> and so if we look at a, just a minor diversion here, the Saturn, the, the Roman god of sowing seeds, uh, he was Saturn. And the story of Saturn is he was a god who was mentally unbalanced. He was aggressive. The prophecy told to Saturn was that one of his children would overthrow him, and so he ended up killing and eating one of his children in the you know in in the mythology. And so then his other children had to be you know hidden from him. Now, why is that relevant? It's because I'm lead- beginning to wonder this myself. <laughs> it's because lead poisoning occurs to plumbers. In the Roman, ancient Roman area, they're working with it all the time. They'll inhale it or ingest it. And so lead poisoning was experienced by plumbers. So plumbers or Saturnism was the symptoms that they got and were given. And so the descriptions of lead poisoning is found in some ancient Roman writings. Hence gout and stone afflict the human race. Hence lazy jaundice with her saffron face palsy with shaking head and tottering knees, and bloated dropsy, the staunch sot's disease, consumption pale with keen but hollow eye, and sharpened feature showed that death was nigh. The feeble offspring cursed their crazy sires, and, tainted from his birth, the youth expires. So in 14 BCE, we have a Roman architect, uh, Vitrivius, who wrote about this pale complexion and the illness in the lead workers. And he quoted, The lead receives the current of air, the fumes from it occupy the members of the body, and burning them thereupon, rob the limbs of the virtues of the blood. Therefore, it seems that water should not be brought in lead pipes if we desire it to be wholesome. And so he's starting to cotton on that this lead might be bad for the people who drink it because the lead workers are getting ill themselves in this pale complexion. Uh, You know, 200 BCE, so a bit before this time, they're talking about lead poisoning that we know now was reduced motor skills and paralysis. And so even, you know, Hippocrates wrote of a a lead worker with colic, so, you know, abdominal pain. Uh, Dioscorides uh, noted that this kind of disease, this Saturnism or this, this plumism, could cause paralysis or delirium, intestinal problems and swelling. And so 
the thing with the Romans was they used lead on a huge scale. Uh, it was mined in England and Spain and brought back for them to use. They used it in water pipes, underground pipes, jars, pewter, tableware. They used it in coins, paint, cisterns, roofing, uh, even cosmetics and skin bleaching agents, which I'm not quite sure what that yeah. is. Uh, but they would use it in pots. It begs the question, what else have the Romans <laughs> done for us? And so what they would do is they would boil their food uh, in mm. these in these lead-based pipes. Not only that, if they had a particularly bad harvest of grapes, they would boil them in the in, in these lead pots, and you would get this precipitate or this uh, leaching of lead. It's called lead acetate that would make the wine sweeter. So, so people would use it as a sweetener. Unfortunately, it's toxic. Uh, and I reckon so- there's some wineries around the place <laughs> with their cask wine who do something similar to that. I'll leave that one alone. Uh, But they talk about emperors from 30 BCE to 220 CE involved in their diet and their food and, you know, contaminated with lead. Now, depends on which author you read as to how that affected. You know, some people, there's theories that some people say, well, they had lack of offspring because it has uh, a fertility impairment. Mm -hmm. And so that's why the emperors had so few offspring. Uh, that no, no lead in the pencil, as they say. <laughs> that may or may not be true, but some have said it's the entire downfall of the Roman Empire, this lead poisoning. Wow. So you've got the whole spectrum there. Uh, I'm not sure I, I come down anywhere. It's certainly affected. There's even a Roman cookbook uh, that has, you know, four, you know, of the 450 recipes, you know, a fifth of them are enhanced by lead oh. cooking because it, it sweetens the flavour. So... I have to look through my CWA cookbook when I go home and see if there's... Well, maybe you could sweeten your meal. There you go. That's something else to do. Wattle seed and lead scones. <laughs> and so, but the, see, it wasn't confined just to the Romans. In the Middle Ages, it's, there's something called sugar of lead, which is, again, lead acetate. Uh, it could be added to, to wine and foods to make them sweeter. So it clearly has a sweetening f- flavour. It's mm. just not good for you. And then not only that... We have it now history. So as we mentioned, leaded gasoline or yes. leaded petrol, uh, because it was used to help try and uh, Stop lubricate. Yeah, the- exactly. Mm. It was it was used that. The problem with that in the 1920s, they started to add it, and then workers who were working with it got very very got sick. You know, in in between 1923 and 1925, you know, there was a plant that had 44 workers that had to be hop- hospitalised because of this. Uh, lead poisoning, you know, eight workers ended up dying. Which so explains why it was you know, prudent to wait until the 1980s before you actually took action. Again. Well, there was public outcry and they did have a convention, but it didn't start being phased out into the 1970s. Uh, and then we get when it was banned uh, in the US in 1996 and in Australia in 2002. Oh, wow. In the 1980s, research scientist Jerome Regu recreated Sapa using ancient recipes that detailed the methods the Romans used to make the artificial sweetener. His results confirmed what he had long suspected, that the Sapa turned out to contain a dangerous concentration of lead. Quantities ranged from 240 to 1,000 milligrams of lead per liter. That's way more lead than I like in my liter. 
Norego explained that even one teaspoon of such a syrup would have been more than enough to give a person chronic lead poisoning. The Romans, of course, were ingesting far more. How dangerous was ancient Roman sapa? Well, it was so bad that if it existed today, it would be outlawed in the United States. And we're talking about a country that loves Big Macs and Four loco. On this pathological life, of course, we're investigating lead, and we're asking back onto the podcast uh, this time a guest from last year, uh, Dennis Strank, who's a pathology assistant at Wisconsin Diagnostic Laboratories. Dennis, welcome back to This Pathological Life. Thank you, Steve. It's an honor to be uh, back on the third best pathology podcast. <laughs> and who's number one? We, we won't mention that one, but we we know who's number two. Well, let's see if you help us go up or down on the ratings uh, with this particular interview. So the pressure's on. Oh, okay. <laughs> I, wish, I, I wish I'd have known that ahead of time. In our exploration of lead, we have referenced thus far the Roman Empire and intriguingly, whenever I visit the US, I always feel like I'm joining the Roman Empire with the imperial look of the guards' costumes at the airports. Do you feel that there's a great Roman imperialism with your guards at the borders? Or is it due to get immune to that? I have to say, I've never thought of it that way. But now that you mention it, I yeah, I think you're correct. <laughs> all right. So we know that uh, the Romans loved their lead and used it for all manner of things. In America, I, I'm surprised to hear that there is quite a large problem still with lead, particularly lead water pipes. Um, can you give us an update on, on, on that? Sure. Well, apparently we Americans loved our lead as well. Um, and you're correct. There, there is a problem with lead water pipes throughout the country, really. Although Congress banned the use of lead pipes in 1986, but the problem with that was they banned that for new construction. So any pipes that were already in use in homes were allowed to remain there. And it's the numbers that I've seen still to this day, there's probably 15 to 22 million Americans that are still uh, living in homes, you know, cooking and drinking water that comes from lead pipes. That is staggering, given your role in the world is really the, the leading force of the, the Western nations to think that would happen. Are these people aware of this and, and drinking uh, shipped in water or it's just accepted? It, it depends where you live, but in some, some cases it is just accepted. And, you know, there are filters and bottled water, things like that. But I don't think it's it's made as much of a priority in the public knowledge that it really should be. Now, of course, what came to my attention and many people around the world is 2014, which is in recent history. I would expect most of the things that Dr. Travis Brown digs up are from the 1900s, you know, etc. But this is an issue in Flint, Michigan, where this really came to a head. Can you fill us in on, on this story? Because it's staggering that this is something that has occurred in a leading Western country in the past decade. So Flint is in Eastern Michigan. It's about 65 miles, approximately a little over 100 kilometers north of Detroit. And this is a city of about 100,000 people was the population. So in April of 2014, now Flint had a financial crisis of its own. And so the city decided one of the ways to save money because the 
uh, they were getting their water from the from the Detroit system. So this is from the Detroit River uh, and Lake Huron. And the cost of that had been steadily going up over the years. So the city decided that one of the ways to save money was to switch to getting their water from the Flint River. So from the local river. The problem with that is the river uh, was known to be contaminated because of decades of industrial pollution. But they went through with it anyway. And the thing that they didn't do was they didn't apply in the treated water. There's corrosion inhibitors that you can add, uh, which they did not do because because of the cost, I, I think. So the residents of Flint almost immediately noticed uh, the water smelled bad, it tasted bad, and it had a darker color to it. So, of course, they complained about that because that you know that's what I would do too. Hmm. And it seemed what happened is the polluted water was reacting with the lead pipes and leaching lead from the pipes into the water itself and then into the, you know, into the homes. You mentioned the C word before, corrosion uh, and corrosive inhibitors, because that doesn't sound like a good recipe when you've got water in lead and you've got that at play. That's true. And also something else that was affected because the water was chlorinated, but the chlorine reacted with the lead because of the corrosion and it kind of took the chlorine out of the water. So then you had, there was a small outbreak of Legionella in Flint at the time, which was, that that's a completely side story. And that wasn't even reported until I think two years later. So let's look at the, the human toll that's paid when this is being ingested in drinking water. What sort of symptoms were we seeing? Lead is a neurotoxin, and you were seeing developmental symptoms. I think slower developmental symptoms in in the children. There were there were roughly it was between six thousand and twelve thousand children that were exposed to the lead from the from the water. And so they're starting to present themselves uh, with symptoms because I believe the uh, the residents were. Uh, orchestrating water samples to try and get attention from the authorities. And there was uh, um, not a sprightly response from those in power. Right. So it took the uh, the U.S. Environmental Protection Agency came in and tested the water. And then because the children that were being lead poisoned were going to doctors, and then the doctors started noting massively elevated lead levels uh, in the children. And so they were reporting these things. And then there was, a, there was also a study from Virginia Tech and they were reporting elevated levels of lead in the water. And finally the government, I guess, started to believe the residents because it, it took a while. And you know, I'm not sure how familiar you are with American politics, but when it comes to trust in the government, that's something we don't have a lot of <laughs> to begin with, even at that time. A theme that started arising in some of our conversations, in fact, we've got an episode on leprosy. Uh, mm-hmm. Dr. Travis Brown mentioned how marginalized groups often bear the brunt of neglect or experimentation over the years. And some of my reading on the Flint story uh, highlighted the fact that there is a large African-American population. Uh, do you think that was it had anything to do with it in the in the makeup of this scenario that things might have been done differently had it been your white americans i really want to say no but 
given the way things have been going here the last few years, it's hard to deny that claim. It really is. So I, I, yeah, I can't say for sure. Mm. So what now? Where are we at? Have have things been restored in Flint? I, I saw some mixed reporting on some things being done and promised, but then the residents still having to be vigilant to make sure that replacing of pipes, et cetera, filtration was actually taking place. Right. So they did, I believe it was in 2016, then they did finally switch back to the Detroit water system. Um, And of course, the city officials declared that the water then in Flint was safe. But as you can imagine, the residents were skeptical of that. So there is still testing being done. And now, you know, there's the work of replacing the lead pipes throughout the city. And this is, you know, this is something that's true where I live in, in Milwaukee you've got to find the pipes and then dig them up. And, you know, we have very cold winters. So the pipes are several feet below ground. One one of the, some of the numbers that I saw, the average cost of replacing a lead service line is about $5,000. And you figure uh, with all of the pipes then across the country is somewhere in the neighborhood of $30 billion to do all of them. And from what I saw just in Flint alone, it's going to be at their government is estimating about $60 million and it would take roughly 15 years to complete replacing all of the lead pipes throughout the city. It's a tough gig, I would imagine, for general practitioners who are the people we craft this podcast for because they're at the front line and that they'd right. be seeing these sort of symptoms pop up out of context necessarily. So again, this is where being able to call upon pathological services to explore um, theories, to, to test what might be going on. That is a tough gig. And that was the case in Flint. I mean, it was the the GPs that were noticing the elevated uh, lead levels in the children, which really started, kind of sparked the whole investigation. So that's lead in the water. But I've also seen other stories. Uh, I'm not sure if they were necessarily from Flint, but stories of... Um, houses that have been passed down from generation to generation where there's lead paint and all sorts of things and and little babies you know, it's chewing away on the on the, the their right. cot or, or a windowsill and and having all sorts of issues so how prominent is lead in other aspects of society in America at, at the moment I mean there's basically three major areas where lead was used so we already talked about the water there was leaded gasoline. And then the third one, like you mentioned, is lead-based paint. Now, this is another another thing that was banned in the 70s. Uh, it was 1978 that lead-based paint was banned, but again, for new construction. So any home that had existing lead-based paint was allowed to, it was allowed to stay there. And what you've got is over the years, uh, the, the lead paint is covered up by uh, you know, other other coats of paint and, and things like that. Uh, like you mentioned, if there's any paint that was chipping or, um, you know, around the windowsills and things like that. And even if you're doing, uh, you know, remodeling or some kind of construction on a house that already had lead-based paint, you had to be careful of that. And I actually had uh, in my own home because I we have an older home and we had a large window replaced a couple of years ago. So we had someone, some people come in and do it. And they had to put up a like a lead shield, for, you know, to to catch any kind of dust or things like that. 
and and they had to test after they were done to make sure there wasn't any lead uh, paint fragments or paint powder, I guess it would have been in the air. So it was it's it's still a, a very big deal. Our infatuation with some substances in the past ignorantly is catching up with us in many ways because that is very similar to some asbestos, which was found in a rear fence on our property. And when that had to be removed, you had the huge right. sheets go up, the special clothing, etc. So lead and asbestos, perhaps bedfellows when it comes to being dangerous substances to work with. That's a very good way to put it. Yes, I mean th those are there were two substances that were thought to be very beneficial and were used everywhere, and you know both kind of came to the same end. I think that they found to be poisonous. On that note, Dennis Drank, it's great to have you back on the podcast again. Uh, I feel like I can go and pour a nice glass of Adelaide water now and relax happily and safely. Can you do the same? I'll drink mine out of a filter, but yes, I will. Thanks very much. Thank you. So then that brings us back to Australia. So have we had any problems with lead? Uh, and None whatsoever. <laughs> the answer is yes. In South Australia, we have. We, we have our own. There's a, a Port Pirie, uh, which is a, we have a lead smelter that's been here since 1889. Uh, and the problem is uh, there is lead in the environment uh, because of this, and, and children's lead levels have become of increasing concern. So, you know, lead levels uh, in just recently in the last, you know, few years mm -hmm. uh, have hit a, in two-year-olds, have hit a 10-year high, uh, measured at 7.3 uh, micrograms per deciliter. That will become more apparent what that means in the next segment. Yeah. Uh, but he, here we go with you know with child, number of children testing over twenty micrograms per deciliter, thirteen in in two thousand and nineteen and sixteen in twenty twenty. So this is a really concerning trend. Uh, it is because I thought we were on top of that and it was heading in the other direction. No, it's mm. uh, parents are becoming increasingly concerned and particularly on windy days won't let their children play outside in that area, uh, and lead is. Also, uh, unrelated to this, found in, in homes and, and some public places. So uh, there was a Macquarie University study that found that, you know, uh, children have levels greater than 10 uh, micrograms per deciliter in their blood now uh, for a duration uh, can lose up to 13 IQ, po uh, IQ points per 10 mm. uh, micrograms per deciliter. So... Yeah, when we look at Port Pirie, you know, the second half of 2020, the lead smelter was found to have breached the EPA standards. Uh, and uh, so that's part that's mixing in here. So it's it's being aware of it. It's also being aware that it's, it's it can be in, in overseas cosmetics. Um, it's old paint and houses. And we'll go a little bit more into into the significance of that in this, this next segment. All right. We'll come back in just a moment. Look right at me. Look right at me. When her son Gavin started to become ill, it was subtle. So subtle, Leanne Waters wouldn't have been blamed for missing it. Okay, look right at me. Keep your head straight. How about over here? How many? Okay. One. Okay, good job. Look up. Look down. Do, do you have any? Do, do your fingers feel numb at all? But one day she looked at Gavin and then looked at his twin brother Garrett side by side. The difference was staggering. 
The size he is right now is pretty much the size he was last February, February 5th um, of 2015. So oh, almost a year, almost year ago. Almost a year ago, yes. How much does he weigh versus his twin? He's 35.8 pounds and his twin is 53 pounds. For months they had been drinking the same water, but Gavin was showing the effects of being poisoned by lead. And such is the nature of lead poisoning. It can affect people very differently, even twins. Do you remember what the number was? 6.5. What And what is normal? Um, nothing. There's no safe exposure to lead. It's a mantra repeated by doctors all over the world. No lead, not even a little bit, is acceptable because we know more than ever what it does to the body. When lead is ingested or inhaled, no organ in the body is spared. Lead even attacks the DNA, affecting not just you, but your future children. All of it essentially irreversible. Equally frustrating, the symptoms could show up now or years from now. Dr. Travis Brown, so far in this episode, you've led us along a garden path. Let's head back to the pathology laboratory now. Right. So, yes, we're, you know, led. The, the interesting thing is, and, and, and the theme that will be coming through pretty loud and clear by, by this stage, uh, is how little we know how much pathology is caused. We, we know things cause disease, but we often don't know exactly how it causes disease. And, and lead, unfortunately, falls into that area, uh, as will become apparent. So This continues to surprise me <laughs> that we still have these shadow areas in 2021. Well, we know it causes a disease, but what it does to do... Okay. See, as soon as you know how something uh, causes a disease, you can potentially prevent it. Mm. The problem with lead is, again, we think it interacts with certain areas uh, of certain chemicals, but we're not quite okay. sure. So, you know... Again, there's been public health measures against lead. This is, you know, paint now doesn't have it, but it used to have it in it. Uh, petrol, again, same same thing. Consumer goods. We have outlawed it, but not everywhere will will have outlawed it. So, what we measure, what's the, you know, what is a safe lead level? Well, no one knows. None is safe, but if we have less than five micrograms per deciliter, then that is the measure that is safe for us because that's what we can measure. Mm -hmm. uh, if it's less than five, then it's fine. And there's trace amounts just in our food and natural environment, uh, drinking water and dust, you know, so that's a sort of a background measure. Uh, but the roots of exposure, so if you come across lead, look, it's not absorbed, readily absorbed through the skin. Uh, but if it's inhaled or ingested, that is where it can be. But it also depends on the quality. Is it really fine dust that can be inhaled and then go into the system or is it larger particles? And so the size of the particles is important. The unfortunate thing is small children can absorb much higher levels than adults. And, and that's because up to, that? five, up to five times. I think it's just because they're developing. Okay. And so they get just much more absorption happening than adults do. Uh, and also children, younger children, have a propensity to touch objects, to touch that, touch their mouth or put objects in their mouth. And if you've got flaking, you know, old paint, mm. well, you're going to chip away at it and then you might put that in your mouth. And that's me with my pencils when I was at school. That, that <laughs> and it's just thing. natural. It's natural. Thing. The problem is you put something into your mouth. If it's not good for you, then it's going to cause problems. Yeah. And not only about that with lead, it can cross the placenta. So it can affect the fetus. Mm. And so what do we know? Well, we know when it's absorbed, it goes into the brain, it can go into the heart, liver, 
spleen, uh, also into the kidneys, and it can be stored by the body in teeth and bones. Oh. So if it gets to a certain level and it stays there, then it can then sort of just transport out into the body as well. And we know that with women who are pregnant, if they've got it stored in their bones, it will just continually go into the, and affect the fetus. Oh. So as I mentioned, the pathogenesis is poorly understood. How does it cause problems? Well, we believe it interferes with things like calcium and zinc. So things like disrupting uh, mitochondrial function, so the engine house of the cell. Uh, it, so you have problems with that. What we talk about the presynapse, so when neurons are trying to transmit a signal, somehow it interferes with calcium in that area, so it doesn't transmit it so well. So that's why we're talking about a paralysis. Mm -hmm. And there's a protein C that is involved in the brain function, which it appears to interfere with, and that's why we talk about a delirium. So this is what we believe happens. We're not exactly sure of the mechanism by how it does, but it seems to interfere with calcium and, and probably zinc. Even without knowing that, it's enough to know that we're seeing this yeah. to then take preventative measures. Exactly. So if we know that it causes it, we can prevent it, um, but we don't know how it interferes. So, uh, But the problem is and we know there's significant effects in young children and neonates if they're exposed to it, and they will have uh, long-term consequences or health consequences for that. So how do we measure it? We measure it in the blood. Uh, blood lead levels and if it's between 5 and 10 micrograms per deciliter we know that this is associated with adverse cognitive function so reduce in in iq yeah. and academic achievement but there can also be behavioral problems such as a, a you know attention deficit or impulsivity and hyperactivity I, I remember there was a link to increased violence in urban centers uh, with the parallel with uh, lead in the petrol in america I so there also used to be sniffing uh petrol lead petrol which again you know people would get high from that but when you're sniffing an inhaled leaded petrol, you're also getting a very good dose of lead. Mm. And then that will have behavioral problems and, and all kinds of problems. And again, getting rid of it. It's, a, it's interesting. We still call it unleaded, even though there is no leaded. Yes. Uh, so, yeah, I'm not quite sure what else we should call it, but, you know, uh, that's what it is. That's beyond the scope of this program. <laughs> so, and then if we start getting over 10 micrograms per deciliter, we start getting other symptoms. So things like GI tract symptoms, abdominal pain, you get anemia, cardio cardiovascular interruptions, uh, reproductive problems um, and neurological functions. And as we mentioned, calcium, like it can accumulate in the bones. So... Some people, the, the interesting thing is some people may not even show symptoms, even up until 40 grams, sorry, 40 micrograms per deciliter. Mm. So symptomatology is, is a little bit variable. But what we do know is that in general, people who test between 10 to 60 micrograms per deciliter have an increased blood pressure, have reduced hemoglobin, meaning they become anemic, and they get abnormal kidney function and have interfered with uh, brain function, so cognitive abilities. And when they're getting between the range of 45 and 70 micrograms per deciliter, we call this is acute lead poisoning. And this is where we start to get all the symptoms of, you know, pale and muscle weakness. And, you know, they talk about gastrointestinal symptoms like nausea, vomiting, constipation, um, things like, you know, uh, forgetfulness, irritability. You would hope the symptoms have alerted 
the medical fraternity for that person well, well before they get to this when point. When we get to this stage, you would be actually looking for it. Uh, the Not, not necessarily because it's... It's a hard thing to have in the differential diagnosis because in a normal centre such as Adelaide or any major city, you wouldn't think about it. But in in exposure areas, you may, but it's an important thing that you know you don't have those symptoms explained and think about could this patient be have lead poisoning. So when I get my annual thing and the the GP sends me the list of blood tests, which ClinPath <laughs> will do for me, it, would that this have been captured in those sorts of things? Not likely. And no. that's that's the thing. Lead is not a common... And again, in the general environment, it's not even a problem. Sorry, general community, it's not a problem. But a GP in Port Pirie, et cetera, would be mindful of this one. Exactly. And this is where you would need to test that. And then if the patient comes here from Adelaide, from Port Pirie, you would sit there and go, ah, this is important. You know, could this child be exposed that's having these kind of problems? And so when we get into the range uh, higher than this, over 70 micrograms per deciliter, this is a medical emergency. Mm. And so what they get is what we call encephalopathy. So they get brain uh, involvement to such a point that can lead to death. And and children emergency range is between 70 to 100 micrograms per deciliter. Mm. Adults is between 100 and 120 micrograms per deciliter. That being said, doesn't matter. It's a medical emergency. It needs immediate attention. Uh, and, and the the interesting thing to note here is that we measure it in in people as micrograms per deciliter. Industry measures it as parts per billion. So they have to do t- industrial type testing mm. to see how much lead is in the water or anything, and they will measure it at part per billion. They're two different environments to test, but just know that parts per billion should will have an uh, an industrial level that that. Should not be exceeded, and then we have a medical level that we can sort of equate. So, look, we do do blood level testing, but it's not recommended. There, there are places where you can actually get tested for bone and teeth and sweat, nails, hair, where blood sort of testing because what you know, if you get contamination in your hair, of let what does that mean? Well, you, it can be there, but it might not be affected. Mm-hmm. Uh, but again, it's just one of those things just to consider uh really and look we've discussed where uh you know how it manifests itself lead is still important today uh in a certain you know population so where is lead about well we have it there's lead-based paint in old houses especially houses earlier than 1970s uh can have lead-based paint and particularly if it's flaking or peeling off well that's the problem uh that you know renovations yeah and uh, old baby cots that are passed well, down. Well, old from, toys yeah. also. And that's that's what people, you know, you don't think about it too much, but old beautiful toys can have actually lead-based paint. Uh, hobbies, people who have renovations or restorations of old cars can actually have lead in, in paint or lead in mm. involved in it. There is some uh, soil contamination, so industry-based uh, and mining. Uh, and particularly, they they do mention quite a lot heavily used roads that are old roads uh, on the roadside yeah. soil because that's been had the the petrol going past for you know, decades and decades, you know, however long, or the soil can be contaminated with lead base from the lead based fuel. Uh, and again, just important to note that some traditional medicines and some imported cosmetics uh, can have lead, uh, jewelry, old coins, metal, and even curtain weights. Uh, it could be made of lead. So it's still it's still about, again, if it's confined and it's looked after, well, that's what it is, but there's just a risk. My takeaway, I can still suck my pencils. 
but be careful what cosmetics I apply to my face. Was I picked up? Go for those ones. (laughs) Good take home lesson. This Pathological Life is produced by ClinPath Pathology in South Australia. Episode notes, references, and learning objectives, when applicable, can be found at thispathologicallife.com.au. And you can contact the hosts on Twitter via at Dr. Travis Brown or at Steve Davis. Thanks again for listening. And just a reminder, if you haven't done it yet, have a quick search in your podcast app for our second series, This Medical Life. Dr. Travis Brown has rolled up some extra guests, some extra topics, and we continue the story there. And we'd love to have you along.